Puck Junk Podcast. I don't know what number podcast it is. I don't care. The important thing is, is we're doing a podcast. It is the middle of July, July, whatever. It's been a little while since our last podcast, but that's okay because even though hockey season is over, uh, a lot has gone down in the NHL since the Penguins won the Cup. There's been a couple of crazy. Who, wait, tra- wait, who who won the cup? I, I believe I believe it was the 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 Pittsburgh Penguins. Oh yeah, yeah, they yeah. did. Yeah, you uh, you're familiar with them, I think. I, I am. I've heard of them a couple of times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they're pretty good. Pretty good from what I understand. A little bit. But anyway, I know some of this is old news, but we just haven't had a chance to talk about it. So, and I like the way everybody talks about how the NHL went insane for like a a, a day, and you had this. P.K. Subban for Shea Weber trade. What's your take on that? Uh, all right. I understand it. Just knowing the background, the storyline coming out of this about how, you know, apparently P.K. is some kind of cancer in the uh, locker room. And that may be true. It may not be true, but whatever. I get it. They wanted to move him. They wanted to get him out of there. But trading P.K. for Shea Weber straight up, I mean, come on. You got arguably one of the best offensive type defensemen going up against a guy that, yeah, he he hits the puck hard, but I don't like the trade. I mean, at all. I think I think Nashville made out better from a player standpoint. I don't necessarily think the fan base is going to ever get over for either team. Because they were both beloved players by their fan base, so it, it's kind of a puzzling thing to me. It's really, it really is puzzling. So let me say this, and I think everybody kind of this is the general consensus: the uh, Montreal coach uh, Therian did not like Subban, and uh, the GM Mark Bergevin did not like Subban, and so I think it's that's because he's not Canadian. He's not a ca- typical Canadian player that it's you know soft spoken and. You know, towing the company line. No, he's 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 an individual. You know, personally, I'm not a fan of the guy. I respect what he does, mm-hmm. but he's one of those guys that injects a lot of enthusiasm and chutzpah, if you will, to the game. He's a personality, and there's not many of those in this game. And that's because a problem. You have all these guys. Well, and it is. That's you a problem. Grow, you want to grow against other sports where you guys got you got guys that are flashy and, and all this kind of stuff and yet hockey albeit I don't mind it but hockey you know breeds these hockey players from young age and they're taught to say the right things and to do the right things and to act the right way and everything else you know a player like PK doesn't come around very often so you know the flash and the flair that he has you know I mean look they they would they focused how many minutes on the clothes that he wears when he goes to like the NHL awards and shows up to different events and things like that. He wears these outlandish suits that that make Don Cherry jealous. So, right, I and mean, we I think we agreed last year when we talked about the awards show um, that PK was a highlight of that. Sure, and and he's that kind of player. He's a personality player, but he also can back it up on the ice. You know, I don't. I don't discount Shea Weber at all. I don't discount his game. He's a he's a fantastic player, um, you know, potential Hall of Famer right there. But just to be able to say to your fans, you know what? We don't care what you think. We're going to 
you know, make this deal. I, I, again, I, I, I get it. I get what you're doing, but I, I don't know. It still baffles my mind. I, and you know, the thing is, is I've always liked Subban. I've always liked Weber. They're different types of players. They're both great players. Uh, obviously I feel bad for Montreal fans because they lost this really fun player. And here's the thing. Yes, the NHL does train the players, you know, to say the right thing and be boring and be on point, toe the company line, as you said. But, I, one, that's boring. We're tired of it. Two, PK didn't do that, but I don't. he never hurt anybody by doing it. You know what I mean? Like, you never heard anything bad that happened because PK Subban wore an outlandish suit or because PK Subban acted a little silly or because PK Subban does that low five celebration with Carey Price, right? It wasn't like he was uh, hurting anybody. Uh, if anything, he was making hockey more interesting. I mean, I love hockey, and I'll find everything about it interesting, but just to an outside uh, person, it, it I could see how they would be, like, you know, not too interested in this player who's like, you know, yeah, you know, we just got to go out there and work hard and do our thing, and we just got outworked by the other team, and we just got to come back and try harder. And isn't that, like, what every single player says in the NHL? From Tr- That's Sydney, the robot. Sydney Crosby on down. Response. Right. And you yeah. won't get that from Subban. Uh, you won't get that from Jeremy Roenick, who, by the way, once again, snubbed for the Hockey Hall of Fame, which really pisses me off. Again, another guy who wouldn't, you know, f- you know, bow his head, fall in line, and, 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 and uh, you know, do everything that he was told, uh, or, or not voice his opinion, not saying that Roenick was always right either. But, I mean, I think of these two players, and they were both fun in their respective eras. Um, but now for Nashville, not only do they get PK, but they get out of that 12 or $14 million a year contract that they, that offer sheet that they matched from Philadelphia. Right. And that's, that's another thing. I mean, you can look at it from that money standpoint, but again, I go back to this. You have a player that's a franchise player. And you turn around and he's gone just like that. You know, how do you how do you recover from that and how do you pick up the pieces? It's gonna be interesting to see how Montreal handles going into this season, handles bringing Shea Weber out and, you know, putting him in the lineup. I mean, I think people will grow to, to like him and I think Subban's gonna do great in Nashville. I mean, you know, it's Music City down there. So I mean he would fit in fit in perfectly. I can just see him now wearing like cowboy hats and everything else. But you know, it's those stuffy those stuffy old school hockey purist suits up in Montreal that that didn't get they didn't get PK and that's why he's no longer there. I mean that's the bottom line. Yeah, and you know, I wish uh not not that I would have any effect on this, but I would have loved to have seen PK Subban come to Chicago. I mean, I wish the Blackhawks had made a pitch for him. I look look at the trades they made recently. They got rid of or got rid of. Sorry, they traded Andrew Shaw to Montreal, right? Okay, yeah, another baffler right there. And then they traded Tivut. Well, they traded Brian Bickle and his contract to the Carolina Hurricanes, and they had to throw yeah. in uh, okay. uh, Tevu Teravainen, right? Yeah, Teravainen got was basically free. 
Yeah, well, it was essentially just, how that works. Here, take take this monster contract. Well, it's not a monster contract, but take this ugly contract, and we'll give you yeah, one of our. It's not monster, but it's ugly because it's Brian Bickle. So. Yeah, I mean, and 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 we'll give you one of our best and brightest. No offense uh, to Brian Bickle if he's listening. So. Right, right, uh, and you know, Bickle's done a lot of good work charity around Chicago and stuff like that. I mean, he's kind of like. Because my aunt has three pit bulls and Bickle does a lot for pit bull rescue and, you know, just pit bull acceptance, I guess. He's, he's kind of popular among my family members. Like my mom bought me for Christmas, like the Brian and Amanda Bickle Foundation had this like pit bull calendar that had like Blackhawk players with pit bulls. That was the calendar, you know? Hawks and, and pit bulls, right? And that was cute. It wasn't what I really wanted for Christmas, but, you know, it was all right. Um, yeah, but you get that kind of stuff with players like that. You know, role players and, and players that come into a team that have a specific job. Do I mean, look at them across the league. Every team has them. That They're constantly going out and doing charity work and doing all this kind of stuff. Right. They become well-known in the community. They become respected in the community. And then with a the blink of an eye, they're gone. So, I mean, I get, I know it's a business, but, you know, for a fan base that's loyal, like a Montreal fan base or a Nashville fan base, as we've seen over the last few years, you know, it's going to be rough. I think the, I think the biggest baffler though, you know, not to cut that short, Taylor Hall for Adam Larson. What is that? You know, that was like, that was like, um, Saying yes to the uh, the first the first boy that asked you to the dance, right? No, I don't know. Like that was just a bad trade. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't. The Oilers say- are rebuilding. They're in rebuilding mode. They've been in rebuilding mode since Wayne Gretzky went to the Kings. I mean, that's that's really what we're dealing with here. So you have an, this Oilers team that gets the number one draft pick or top five draft pick every year, seemingly forever. And can't do anything with these guys. You know, yeah, they develop into their own players like a Taylor Hall, like, you know, Ryan Nugent Hopkins, like um, what's that guy's name? Oh, yeah, Connor McDavid. How could I forget? You got all these 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 budding stars, right? But you can't do anything with them because you all you have are these guys that you put on the front line. You have nobody on the back end. Right. You have no goaltending. You right. have no defensemen. How do you build around a top line? How you can't unless you have something on the back end, or you have guys that that play defense as well as they play offense. You can't do that. Adam Larson does that help on defense? Of course it does. But Adam Larson on most teams, I'm sorry, he's not a top line D man. Maybe second line, sometimes even third, depending on the team you're talking about. So you. I'll I'll go out on a limb. Arguably one of the top ten players in the NHL. You trade him for what I would consider a second line D man. No, that that to me is like Taylor I don't know Hall what is, you put in your coffee, but that's he, crazy. He's not top ten. I mean, come on. I could name ten players that I'd rather have before Taylor Hall. Crosby, Maybe. Ovechkin, Kane, uh, Panarin. Okay, maybe not Panarin because he's good with Kane. But you get the idea. Like I could name ten. We'll say top 20. Can we agree top 20? Sure, top 20, but I still say he'd be in the top 10. I think he'd be higher. I've always liked Taylor Hall. I like his game. I like the way he plays. Okay. Uh, You know, the problem is he can't – he gets overlooked. He gets overshadowed by the fact that Edmonton is so 
bad. I mean, so bad. I mean, they don't call that hockey Siberia for nothing. Yeah. Well, you know, and I just want to bring it back for just a second on, on PK. Because uh, I would have loved to have seen, and I don't know if the, the, the no movement clauses would have prohibited this. I would have loved to have seen, if Montreal was so eager to get rid of PK Subban, I would have been. I would have loved to have seen, uh, hey, we'll send you Shaw. Okay, restricted free agent, can't do much with him anyway. But, well, they did sign him, though. Shaw, Teravainen, maybe like Seabrook or Keith. Or Keith, instead of Seabrook, uh, I don't know about I don't know. Like, I, I think they would have done it. I think they would have done it. I think Seabrook and, and Subban are comparable. I mean, they're different types of players, but I think they're both pretty good players, but then if you throw in the other things, like, I'm wondering if the Hawks could have done, like, a package deal. Uh, I, I feel like PK is going to be a little wasted, like, yeah, he, they'd love him in New York, they'd love him in LA, they'd love him in Chicago. I, I don't but, think there's a team in this league that wouldn't like to have him. No, but I'm just thinking about, like, I mean, you start thinking of some of those Sunbelt teams, and you're just, you just look sometimes, and you go, ah, you know, like, it's not the same. Crosby would not be the same if he was playing for the Carolina Hurricanes, right? I mean, he'd be the same player, but uh, I don't feel like he'd have the same impact, I don't right? Know. I don't know. Well, because, again, you can be a superstar on your team, but if you don't have a supporting cast, it makes it real difficult. I mean, take Gretzky off the Oilers back in the 80s and put him on, put him on a different team. Put him on the Kings in the 80s. Would the Kings been as good as they were? Or the as Kings good as got, the Oilers? I don't know. The Kings got close. They had the Marcel Dion. They had Dave Taylor. They had Charlie Simmer. They All had right, a fine. pretty put good him, team. They could put, prob- him on the, put him on the Penguins prior to Lemieux. Would oh. the Penguins have been good with Gretzky? No. They wouldn't have. No. I mean, see, well, the, had, the Penguins weren't cast. The Penguins guys, weren't good with Lemieux for five years. They weren't because no. they... They had to build the team around him, and once they did, you saw what happens. Anytime you take a team and you build around a central player, you're going to eventually become a, a competitor. Edmonton's not done that. And as we have seen saw this past year with the fire sales going on on most of the Canadian teams, I mean, look, how many Canada teams made the playoffs? None. Zero. I mean that that should be an eye opener of of what's been going on on a lot of these franchises. People don't want to play for necessarily, you know, that kind of structure and that kind of environment. So that's why it's nice to see the the not with ownership change, but with you know coaching changes and things like that. So I'm really interested to see what happens with Toronto this year coming in. I think Toronto. Toronto has as good a chance as any team up there going into the playoffs and, and doing some damage. But, you know, it's one of those things. You know, there's so much parity in the league now, these trades that go back and forth. I mean, I've heard people argue that P.K. Subban for Shea Weber is a complete even deal, one for one, straight up, and it's perfect. Again, I don't agree, but you know what? I could, I could see it. On paper, I could see it. You know, the Taylor Hall for Larson thing, don't get that one. I'll never get that one. You could explain it to me ten ways from Sunday, and I'll never get that one. Um, but you know, that's just my opinion as a nobody fan. So there you go. Blackhawks signed uh, Brian Campbell to a I think it was a one year deal. 
Um, again. Again, yeah, he's back. Yeah. <clears throat> he says he loves Chicago. He's coming home. You know, we get it. You know, the, Brian Campbell was great here the first time he played here. The problem was was that his contract made no sense. He was making something along the lines of $7 million a season. Uh, he was the highest paid player on the team at the time. This was, from what I heard, um, the Blackhawks wanted to make a big splash at their 2009 convention. So they wanted to have... Uh, they, they made two really big free agent signings that year, they, that summer. They signed Brian Campbell to like a $7 million deal. I think he was the top... Uh, wait, that would have been 2000, not 2009, that would have been 2008, my bad, 2008, and then, um, they signed Cristobal Huey. Oh yeah, I remember that guy. Yeah, and, uh, and, and so they, they, they signed these guys, because then the next year they signed, um, they signed Hosa in 2009, and they had him for the 910, uh, cup run, but, uh, so... Bringing him back at two million a year makes sense because it fits in the the scheme. I mean, it didn't make sense to have him making you know two times as much as Kane or two times as much as Taves, um, and you know they need the help on defense. Now they have a really solid top four with uh, Keith Seabrook, uh, Yalmerson, and uh, Campbell. I mean, that's that is a solid top four. Yeah. I, I don't know. I Campbell's a little past his prime, I think. Yeah, but I think you know what. But I mean, even you look at like look at Kimo Timonen from like two years ago, right? I mean, that guy was way past his prime. And I'll tell you, if the Blackhawks lost the Stanley Cup, I don't think any fan would have liked him. But because they won the Stanley Cup with him playing a very limited role, everybody's like, "Oh, cool, he gets to retire a winner," and he came back from these blood clots that sidelined him for almost the entire season, and he became like this storybook ending, and it was even like part of the uh, the Blackhawks put out this DVD called, well, the, the first one was called One Goal, and then they put it on another, another one called One Goal Two, or whatever, or, or, or three, or something like that, or it, it was some documentary that profiled like three players, and Timonen was one of them, and I tell you, there'd be no love for that guy if the Hawks lost. Everybody would remind, be remember all the mistakes he made on the ice where he just looked inept. Um, Campbell is going to do fine. What I can't understand is the Hawks signed Jordan Tutu to a one-year deal. All that was was a replacement for Shaw. They needed somebody that can drop down low and get in the goalie's face and be a pest. But I and he was pretty say, much the only one available. I wouldn't even say Shaw, though. I'd say, see, to me, Tutu is more of a Daniel Carcillo kind of player than a... Mm. Mm, okay, well, hear me out on this. He He's not... He, Limited he skills... Okay. Limited skills, sandpaper, grit, kind of get under your skin kind of player. Well, that's so, that's his game. He's the he's the pest kind of player. But Carcillo, when push came to shove and it was time to drop the gloves, that was Carcillo. Tutu has been in plenty of fights, and, and he's um, uh, I don't know. Most of the ones I've seen him in, he's not. He doesn't come out on top. Let's put it that okay, way. Okay, that makes sense. But, that makes know, that sense. Does, that's not necessarily, you know, relevant at this point. I mean, you know, with fighting 
come taking a back seat to the game and everything and there's not really that goon type player anymore mm-hmm. you still need somebody that can crash the net can get down low and get those rebound shots and get in the goalie's face and just cause wreak havoc down there Tutu does that that's his game um you know just like Shaw that was kind of Shaw's game um, you know, almost every team has somebody like that. Like Philadelphia has Wayne Simmons. I mean, that guy gets under my skin. You know, the Penguins have Hornquist. He does the same thing. So, like, every team's got to have somebody that can do that type of work on the ice. And by dishing Shaw away, they had to replace that because I don't, I didn't, I don't really remember anybody else on the team that does that kind of stuff. No, I, the Blackhawks are not a very aggressive team yeah they're not chippy Um, and that's uh, that's that's worked against them um in the past um every time and here's the funny thing like every time they get a guy who's kind of tough they see limited i mean adam burrish was a good player good not a good he was a good guy as far as being a tough player but you know, he he was kind of limited with the Blackhawks. And, I mean, now he's in the minors. And uh, John Scott, I mean, that guy, I you know. Yeah, that was, the, that was the other thing. Scott's still available, I think. Yeah. He hasn't been signed. No, hey, man. It, it, I, I'd love to see, I'd love to see, like, uh, yeah, I'd love to see, like, um, like a, uh, not like a Craigslist posting, but, yeah, like a, you know, <laughs> All-star defenseman slash left wing seeking job in National Hockey League. Or it'd be like, uh, all-star hockey player, NHL all-star hockey player seeking position with NHL club. Willing to play defense or left wing. Willing to drop the gloves if needed. Uh, you could even make it a two-for-one special. You hire him and you get Paul Bissonnette as a, as a consolation prize. Hmm, I don't know. Like... Yeah, because he's looking. He's looking for a team too. If yeah. you follow his Twitter account, well, he's gonna, <laughs> he's gonna, he's gonna play with LA's farm team another year. I, I just heard he signed with them. Was it the Ontario Rain? Oh, is it? Yeah, something like that. I don't know. I mean, I like Bissonette. Hey, you know uh, who else is seeking a job? Is uh, Ilya Brzgalov. Oh boy. I think the Penguins could <laughs> use a backup. Uh, Penguins have enough goalies. They don't need anymore. Huh? So the Penguins have enough goalies. They don't need any more, thank you very much. Yeah, hey, you know, um, it's funny because uh, I know like a, a while back we talked about uh, the NHL expanding to Vegas. Um, I don't remember if you said it'll never happen or if you said it'll happen, but nobody will come to the games. <laughs> but they got a team. And you know what makes me well, you know what makes me the happiest about Vegas getting a team and the NHL saying that they're going to expand is that people will stop talking about the expansion rules like because from like january to like right before the awards all they were doing all the pundits all the writers this is what an nhl expansion draft might look like these might be the rules you know teams would probably be able to allowed you know be allowed to protect one goalie teams will probably be allowed to protect four defensemen i mean it's fun to speculate like if you know what the rules are but it's stupid to speculate if you don't even know what the rules are so at least this this at least they could stop pretending like hey let's make up what the rules might be and now they can start saying hey mark andre Fleury is going to be left unprotected in the expansion draft again i don't 
I don't know about all that because number one, you have to protect guys. I mean, if you go to the what the actual rules were, you have to protect players that have no trade and no movement. You do something, yes. Oh well, um, that's any, no anybody fun. that has anybody that has a no movement or a no trade clause has to be protected. So you automatically lose them as one of your choices. So whether you're going to do eight uh, eight skaters and a goalie, or um, you know what is it? Uh, I think. I think it was... You either get you either get nine or you get eleven. It's one or the other. It right, depends right, on right. Configuration. So, you know, if you want to, if you have really great defensemen, you want to protect all your defensemen. Great, but if there's a no trade clause on somebody's contract, uh, my understanding is they have to be one of the ones that are protected. And the Penguins have quite a few guys with no trade clauses. Granted, they're most of the guys that are locked up in contract for the next, you know, three, four, five years. But, um, you know, the more those guys like Crosby and Malkin and Kessel and and Flurry, those guys all have that. So I mean, obviously they're going to be protected. But with Vegas having the expansion team, the NHL is committed to move full bore on this, and they set these rules up so that this team's going to come right out of the box with probably a few star players, not just one, but maybe multiple. I like this. I like this a lot. And I'll, I'll tell you, there's enough talent to go around. I mean, as far as, uh, I mean, some people will argue that there's less talent because what used to be 21 teams, what used to be six teams is now 30 teams and now 31 teams. And it's just become so diluted. But uh, talking about the original six is an argument for another time because really that was just a league that didn't want to grow. Like, but, well. but. Well, they didn't want to grow because they didn't want to have to pay more uh, players. They they wanted to have really tight control. I mean, there were multiple reasons, but um, I mean, the NHL basically grew because they were afraid of being um, surpassed by the Western Hockey League. That's why their teams. That's why the Kings and the Seals were granted franchises. Well, and it's a completely different time now. I mean, there's so many so many players out there. There's so much talent that sits on AHL teams. Yes. And and the the junior teams yes. that that could could easily move up and play in the NHL. They just don't because they're on farm teams of other teams that are are deep enough that, you know, they haven't got their shot yet. Yeah, you know, player mean- development in the NHL is always way behind what most other sports is. I mean, other than baseball, where a guy could get drafted and not show up into the major leagues for 10 years. Um, you know, football, guy gets drafted, he makes the team, he's playing that year. Hockey, guy gets drafted, it's a few years. You know, some of these guys go to college, they play in the minors, they play in Europe, they and they, you know, they cut their teeth that way before they get their shot at the NHL. And it's only the elite guys that, you know, come up and able to make an impact right out of the box so you know going into this draft not only do they get you know the unprotected players from you know the 30 nhl teams but they get a shot at some pretty decent draft picks going into the the draft as well so they get uh basically they get the third whatever the whatever the third pick is Mm -hmm. um that's the number of lottery ball to get for the draft okay so if i don't know how many of the number is but if let's say whoever finished in third right. got 10 balls they got 10 balls also so they have just as much chance as some of those other teams of hitting the number one draft pick mm-hmm. if they don't they're guaranteed no less than sixth in the picks each round okay so if they end up with third they pick third they pick 
they'll pick third. If they end up with six, they'll pick six first round, and then they get the third pick in every round after that. Okay. So, I mean, that's that's kind of how up. So, I mean, third round pick, or not third round, but third pick in the draft, that's not too shabby. Why not I just mean, give you're them gonna, the first? Well, you I, can't I mean, give them everything. Why not? Who's the pick? Who's what? Well, I, I don't know, but the point is, is that, uh, I mean... They couldn't do that when uh, with Eric Lindros. Uh, that was that was when they changed that, uh, where the Sharks got to pick second overall because Quebec balked at not getting their first overall pick, even though they had earned it. Yeah, how'd that work out for them? Pretty well, not for Quebec, but for Colorado, pretty good. <laughs> That's what I meant for Quebec, how'd that yeah. work out for them? Yeah, but um, did, did they get did they get that Lindros player? Uh, well, they got him, but. You know, then they traded him for something better. Because he refused to play. Yeah, well, that's he fine. Wasn't. They they basically built their championship team on that trade. Yeah, they, that's true. They got the parts once, for it. Once they once they escaped Canada. So, um, changing gears, um, I'll be going to the Blackhawk convention uh, this weekend. It's Friday through Sunday. Um. I haven't gone the past couple of years. It's funny because I went to like the first one in 2008, went to the second one in 2009, third one in 2010. I was actually really disappointed with like, so then I, I didn't go to the one in 2011 and then I ended up going to 2012 and 2013. And the reason why I'm telling you like all this, like, oh, well, I went to this convention, but not that convention. I had a friend, I have, um, I'm friends with uh, this couple who are dealers. They're really cool. They actually they they specialize in Blackhawk and Penguins memorabilia. So you know, got all the bases covered there. You know, like my two favorite teams or two teams that I like a lot. But um, they they they've been able to get me in for free because dealers get a few extra passes to to share or whatnot. And uh, I gotta tell you, like I. I liked the Blackhawk convention, but then it, it just kind of grew out of control. They kept adding people, like, more and more people are allowed to buy passes to go to it, so then it's it gets really crowded. I don't know, have you ever gone to any of these fan conventions? I have not had the pleasure, no. Okay, well, um, I, I don't know if this is something you would enjoy, like, obviously you wouldn't want to go, like, for the Blackhawks, if you're a Blackhawk fan, it was pretty cool the first year because there were just enough people that if you couldn't like, if you wanted to go to this panel discussion and it was full, you could find a different panel discussion and that would be empty or you could wait in line for an autograph or if this guy, you know, you couldn't get his autograph, you could wait in line for a different autograph, or you'd say, all right, screw it, I'm going to go to this panel discussion. And now it's gotten to the point where it's like, it's so crowded that like everything you go to, like you'll say, oh, okay, I want to get Brent Seabrook's autograph. Well, he's signing at 10 a.m., okay? Well, but they're giving out bracelets at 9 o'clock. And, you know, only the first 315 people who get these like red bracelets can get his autograph okay fine so then you think well they're giving out the bracelets at nine o'clock i'll get there at nine o'clock so well, what time should i get there mm, i don't know you sounds people, like probably pretty early yeah you have people lining up at 6 a.m 
They'll be like, they'll be outside of the convention and they'll say, oh, I'm in line for Brent Seabrook. And then, so like, you know, when I get there at nine o'clock when it opens and I'm like, hey, you know, maybe I'll, you know, oh, nope, this line is full and it's maxed out. Like, I think one time I was like Brandon Bolig and I really wanted to get him to sign. I had this thing, this Rockford Ice Hogs, it was like an uncut sheet of cards and it had all the players on it. You know, it was like the whole 22 card set or whatever. And it had every single card that was autographed except four players because those four players at the time were called up to the Blackhawks. So I bring this thing with me thinking, okay, I can get these four guys to sign it, right? Nope. Impossible, right? So then people will say, okay, well, then I can't get this guy's autograph. Ooh, but you know what? There's this panel discussion. There's some players from the 1961 season talking about that Stanley Cup victory. Let's let's go to that. Nope, because only the first... 500 people can get in and and not only does that start at 10:30 but people were lining up at 9:30 or whatever for it. So it's gotten out of hand and then here's the other thing that's funny. The show happens in a week and I still don't know who's showing up. Oh, really? Yeah. So they don't, they don't pre-put out a list or tell you ahead of time? No, because you know they used to like what they would do is they they would they'd always sell the tickets like December or January. Actually, it used to be a little bit later, and then it kept getting earlier and earlier. Where they'd say, "Hey, Tim, you want to buy these tickets now?" And it's like right before Christmas, and oh, they're a hundred bucks a piece, and oh, we'll announce who will be there at a future date. Yeah, I'm not I'm not risking a hundred bucks like that. That's that's gambling. Right, exactly. I mean, it used to be they'd show like all these players that would be there, and then. You know what it was once they started having to move people because of the salary cap, that's when they couldn't say, oh, yeah, Dustin Bufflin will be there. Yeah, because the end of the season, guys disappear. So So it was funny because in 2010, some of the people headlining the convention, are you ready for this? John Scott, who had yet to play a game as a Blackhawk. Dylan Olson, who was their first round pick maybe a year or two ago. Um, a couple of other guys, like, I don't even remember, but they were like minor leaguers that had never actually played for the Blackhawks. Yeah. And it was, people were pissed. So it gets watered down and diluted. So people lose their, you know, they go crazy over getting tickets for this thing, not knowing who's going to be there. And then when they find out, it's like, well, talk about your all time backfires. Well, you know, what's funny though, is that, um, I can't so, believe they start lining up at six in the morning. It's I, not like it's not yeah. like you're waiting for stone tickets. It's a Blackhawks convention. I mean, come on. I mean, I understand you. You really, really want to get. Uh, I don't know. Andrew Shaw. But, he was there. You really want to get Machinter's autograph, but you know. <laughs> I mean, really, is it worth that? Come on. Well, that was funny because like three, four years ago, I was making fun of like people waiting in line for Bowleg and Shaw. And like those guys, and uh, you know, it was funny. One, what was it? There was a. Uh, I'm trying to think. It was um, the VIP signers or whatever they call them. This like Kane, Taves, Keith, Sharp, who's obviously gone, Seabrook, and then any of the Hall of Famers. The only way to get their autograph, you can't line up and like get a bracelet for them. What they do is they give you a scratch and win ticket, and you scratch it, and then it'll say, "Congratulations, you get 
an autograph from a VIP signer. Come back Sunday at 9 a.m. at Hall C. And they don't tell you who it is. You don't know until oh like, gosh. Yeah, yeah, like seriously, you don't know who it is until they show up. Although I've figured out a way to figure out who it is. Um, and that's by being very polite and talking to the ushers, which most people are like, oh, I want an autograph. Why can't I get one? Give me what you know. What do you mean you don't have any more of those bracelets? You know, and and I'll just always say please and thank you, and I'll just say, hey, do you know who's signing here tomorrow at 9 a.m.? And they'll say, well, we know it's not Bobby Hull because he just signed, and we know it's not Jonathan Taves because he signed earlier today, and we know it's not so and so because they had to leave early and they're they're flying back to wherever tonight. So then I'm always it's able like to process of elimination. Process of elimination. I'm like, all right, it's either Andrew Shaw or Tony Esposito. So I will bring a picture yeah. of each of them or whatever, right? Um but like one time like uh what was it? Like one of the the signers was Dennis Savard. And my girlfriend goes in line. She's going to get this autograph for me because the scratch and win ticket was like, congratulations, show up to this stage, whatever, right? And the girl in front of my girlfriend says to her, this is her story, so she's telling this, me this story. She said, "Is this, for C- this is for Seabrook, right? And my girlfriend says, no, it's for Savard. And she says, who? And she says, Dennis Savard, you know, Hall of Fame. And she's like, I don't even want this here. And she just hands her the, the ticket and leaves like and so she ends up getting two things signed uh by Savard because she had two of those things but like another time like literally like the the signer was Pierre Palat and now I know you and I see Palat all the time at the Rosemont show the guy signs a lot of autographs but what was funny was people were like oh and they would like literally just give their scratch and win ticket to the usher who's at the line. And it was funny because I just kind of walked up and like the usher was like, Oh, Hey, you're the friendly guy who always says, please. And thank you. Would you like some more? And like hands me another one, you know? So it's, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, and you know, I don't really go to the panel discussions and I should, but, uh, I'm going to go this year and we'll, we'll see what it's like. Yeah. Well, good, good luck. Cause, uh, it sounds to me like it's it's a zoo, so. Oh yeah, and you know what? It's in the basement of the uh, the Hilton, and it's there's like no sunlight, and they finally put carpeting down a couple of years ago. But you know how those concrete floors really get on you, right? Yep. Yeah. So, anyway, um, let's see. I think maybe uh. Maybe we should change the subject again because we're just kind of all over the place today because it's not like we have any games to talk about uh, unless you want to hear about my men's league uh, hockey team, which I know that's not the same, but we play year-round. We're not doing very good this year. But uh, uh, let's. Uh, you wanted to talk about case breaks. I've never done a case break. I would like it if you would explain to me what a case break is because I know you throw in your 30 bucks or whatever and you get some cards, but, um, and, and they always have like, I know like the national is coming up in this year. It's in what Atlantic city. So I won't be going to it, but, uh, um, what is a case break and what's the deal with that? Uh, well, 
it depends on what side of the table you're you're uh, you're talking here. Case break can be a number of things. There's various kinds of case breaks. There's different types of um, or different styles of the way they're run. Uh, the most probably the most common case break is you'll have a breaker that'll buy a case of cards um, for a certain price. And nowadays, because they're so popular, uh, a lot of the more prominent case breakers are getting deals on cases that the normal Joe Schmo like you and I couldn't get. But they buy these cases up and they raffle off or raz off or whatever you want to call it, but essentially put a price tag on a slot in that case. And so you pay X number of dollars for a spot in that break, and then you end up with whatever slot you've paid for. So sometimes there's a team break, so you would pick a team. Or sometimes they're random, where they'll random off a team and say, okay, I have the Detroit Red Wings. So any Detroit Red Wing cards that come out of that case end up being yours for whatever the price you paid for that spot. So now would everybody now, pay the same? If, it, if it's random, they'll pay the same. But then you also talked about raffling. Well, would that be a, Would you pay like a different price for a different team or does everybody get the same? Here's the thing. What has ended up happening in back in the days when it, this first started mm -hmm. uh, and it started becoming prominent, it was it was pretty much that. That's how the, most of these were run, where you'd buy a spot, all the spots were the same price. Pretty much everybody had the same odds as everybody else, mm -hmm. and you know it went from there. Now that everything's getting super premium and uber expensive, there's hit lists that are put out well ahead of time of when products hit the streets. Right. What's actually in there? Because the sell sheets are already released. So you know which teams have hits, which teams don't, which teams have the better hits, and what's really out there to get. So going into it, breakers now know that, for instance, this year was the big one for hockey. Anybody that's going to get Edmonton is going to pay a heck of a lot more for that spot than anybody that's trying to get a different team. Like, you're not going to pay the same amount for the Florida Panthers as you are for the Edmonton Oilers. Why? Because you have a shot at a Connor McDavid, and he was the hottest thing for the whole season, so you're going to pay a little bit more. If you had Buffalo, you'd pay a little bit more than somebody that may have the Islanders. So, it, you know, it, it's not the same across the board in many of these now, so you're basically putting your money on the line to say, okay, I think it's worth... 30 bucks or 50 bucks or in some cases of these high $200 for a spot for a chance at getting, you know, something that's potentially worth it. Mm -hmm. Do you come out on top all the time? No, not at all. The only person that actually makes money in most cases are the breakers themselves. Right. And granted, I'll give it to them. It's a very, it's kind of a lucrative thing, and if you're good at it and you've been around long enough and been in the game long enough, there's guys making some money. I mean, I've or guys consistently make between a hundred and two hundred bucks every every time they break a box, and they're doing upwards of ten, twenty boxes a week, or or cases rather. So, you know. Is it is it crazy to think that somebody can make a couple grand a week breaking open cards? 
No, it's not. If you, if you know how to do it and you've done it right. Now, that's totally different from then what my opinion is as far as what this does to the hobby. Okay. Because my opinions are that where I understand it, I think in the long run, it dilutes the hobby. I mean, sure, it brings people in that don't want to go out. And, I mean, you and I have talked about this many times as well as we have with other people. You know, what does it feel like to drop 100, 150 bucks on a box and get squat out of that box? Pretty terrible. It yeah, it doesn't feel very good. That's like gambling, too. You know, I bought a couple of the Mega Millions tickets. Did I win? No. Somebody from Indiana won, but not me. But that's besides the point. It's the same kind of thing. You plop down money. You, you hope for a return. You don't necessarily get. So what what the case breakers do is they expose a lot of these higher-end cards that may or may not hit the market at the rates that they do now that the breakers are out there. So you got people buying spots in these breaks, hitting these mega hits that they're getting, you know, the whatever jersey, triple auto, you know, DNA cards or whatever they are for whatever set you're dealing with. They're exposing all these to the market. So then the secondary market comes along. And here's these, these you know, c- collectors mm-hmm. that, that, that drop down a couple hundred bucks for spots in a break. And they're looking at these cards and like, well, I got to turn these around to try to make my money back. So now they're trying to inflate prices through the roof. And again, that's what you saw with McDavid this year. Look, this guy, he rookie of the year, which everybody predicted. He didn't finish the season as the top rookie like everybody thought he would. Mm-hmm. He got injured. Now, if he wouldn't have got injured, what would have happened? Who knows? Could he have been the second coming? I, I don't know. I can't tell you that. Is he good? Yes, he's good. But he wasn't even the best rookie, and yet his cards were just astronomical numbers. I mean, even right now, we talk, We you mentioned earlier, you know, Upper Deck EPAC has that Fusion set, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Fusion cards are all over COMC right now. All over Check Out My Cards. You can, you can buy pretty much the entire set if you picked and choose what you wanted. But his Fusion Rookie Black Parallel, I think it is, mm-hmm. it's $500. It's selling for $500. And this is a digital card. And it's... Well, it, it, it started as a digital card because it's the parallel version. You actually get the real card. Oh, okay. But 500 bucks that came out of an EPAC. So I don't, I don't think that the market would be what it is now, cards, especially in, in many of the other sports because, you know, we, we deal with hockey mostly. But, I mean, you look at basketball. Oh, my I mean, there was a box. I was at, um, oh, where was it? I was at uh, Baseball Card Exchange not too long ago. Right. Because it's very close to where I live. And walking around, and there was this box sitting on the top shelf, and I believe it was gold. Um, gold label, gold bar, gold standard. I don't know what it was. Some Panini product, I believe, and it was a basketball set. It was in a huge box on the top shelf, and the price tag on it was fourteen hundred dollars wow. for one box, and it had four cards in it. Wow! And I just laughed. I laughed at it. I laughed. 
So here's somebody that buys a case. I think there's three boxes in a case, right? So it's $1,400 for a box. Okay. So you're looking at, you know, over five grand here. Uh, four, four, 10, 20, 30, 40, uh, 4,200 for, for yeah. three boxes. You said three yeah. boxes in a case. Yeah. I think it's three boxes in a case. Okay. So Sorry. Math is hard, but I mean, you get my point. So you're, you're, you're plunking down 4,000 or more for a case of this product. How much are you going to sell, you know, 30 spots for, or are there 32 teams in basketball? How many 32 teams you're, you Obviously, the point of a breaker is to make money, so they're going to. Well, on that, it's not going to work because if you're only getting twelve cards, you're not going to get all that. You might not get a Chicago Bulls card in those twelve cards. And that's the risk that the buyer takes. So now you're talking about yes, okay. So in ultra premium boxes where you have thirty-two spots, but there may only be. 10, 12, 15 cards right. total in right. the entire break from the case. You know, think of the cup, for instance. You know, somebody opens up the cup. There's not, you know, what is it, five cards? Five cards. Five cards. So, you know, you open up a case of the cup. There's five, what is there? There's five boxes. We'll just say five boxes. That sounds yeah, nice. So 20, 25 cards, you got 30 teams. So... Potentially five teams could get skunked, maybe even more if there's not somebody else there. And these people are getting, or, you know, the collectors or whoever's getting in these breaks pays $70 and you get nothing. So, so you, you just paid 70 bucks to watch somebody on video open packs of cards. You know, it's funny. Not my thing. Is that, um, so there's a contributor to Puck Junk. His name's Jim Howard, uh, not to be confused with the goalie, Jim, Jim Howard. Um, but this Jim Howard in particular, he lives um, it's in North Carolina. He's a Hurricanes fan. He did a case break. Um, he actually wrote about it for Puck Junk a couple months ago. And what was funny was that he bought two spots, and it was of uh, the new Contours product. So he bought two spots. He got the Coyotes. He got the Islanders. And the only Islanders card he got was a base card. And and that's the thing. He's lucky he got a base card. And the many other of these breaks, they don't even give you the base. The card. other one, the other one. Well, I think they like give you the option, like if you want the base cards or you don't want the base cards. Like so, for the Coyotes, he got like most of them. He got a patch card. He got a patch auto of Max Domi. Uh, and, well, that's then he, good. and then he got a, a Shane Doan um, base card, and so that that was fine. So he got like he got like two patch cards. One of them was autographed by a rookie. That that's fine. But then the Tavares. But then what was funny was he did a little digging, and then he found the checklist, and he found out that like there were literally no hits for the Islanders. Like he he didn't. Um, he didn't get to choose what teams he got, obviously, because then everybody would just pick Edmonton. But uh, he he got stuck with the team that didn't that didn't have that literally had no hits. Like it only had three base cards in the entire set. So even the best case scenario, he would have ended up with three base cards. So he emailed the the uh, company that did the case break, and he's like, you know. I know people are not happy with their cards, he's saying, but however, I literally had no shot of getting anyone 
in this in this slot and they said yep we agree and they refunded him refunded his thirty dollars really yeah well they credit they gave him a credit and then they said that what they're going they said that their next count tours case break they were actually going to combine teams and i've seen that a lot where there's no hits so the bottom few they'd only have maybe a couple and they'll throw them all in there but you know for the most part it's the gamble that you take and yeah is sports card collecting gambling it can be if, if you're if that's all you do is open boxes and open packs and do case breaks and everything else yeah it's exactly what it is you know and you know those of us that go out and we buy boxes and we buy packs with there's something in there i think we do it for a little different reason because we're more collectors than right. we are trying to be profiteers on the on the business and i understand it is a business you know just as just as card companies are out to make money brick and mortar stores are out to make money somebody at some point in time whether they're a middleman or not or the person at the shop they're they're trying to make money so you know those of us at the bottom it goes back to how do you want to survive in the hobby if you're going to participate in the hobby how are you going to exist in the hobby are you a case breaker are you a pack opener are you a player collector are you a you know team collector what is your you know what is your focus and you know, getting into doing a little bit of it once in a while. I mean, I'll bet I've gotten into group breaks before. I get into, though, they're ones where you can pick the team. They cost the same amount across the board. And I do my homework and I find out what's actually in this product. Is it something I want? Is it something I need? Or is it something that maybe I have a chance at getting something cool? And so, you know, I've done those before. I've done the random team ones. Only one time has it ever worked out in my favor. And as many as I've participated in, you know, it really hasn't, you know, it really hasn't panned out. So, you know, I'm not saying that because I'm jaded on the whole thing. I just think, you know, from my standpoint and seeing how this affects the hobby as a whole, I think it really waters down what's out there, forces the prices up. And really, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't put any pressure on any of the manufacturers to step up their game and put out a decent product. How does it water down, you said, what's out there? Well, it waters down what's out there based off of supply and demand. I mean, you pull a card that's, you know, one out of 50. Right. Autograph something. Other. If there weren't people breaking cases at the rate that they are, and this product was actually released in normal quantities, you know, that one out of 50 might hold a lot more value than it will when there's a thousand case breakers on the day the product comes out. They all bust their product between, you know, a day or two. And now all of a sudden that one out of 50, 34 of them are already on eBay for sale. Right. So that first one never gets to go for a hefty sum because right. you have 10 of them or 20 of them making a debut at the same time. Right. Now, on the other hand, exposing the lower count stuff, you know, the one of ones, the one out of two, you know, one out of fives or whatever, those get exposed a lot more often. So, you know, you see a sell sheet and you're like, wow, there's a one of one, you know, Connor McDavid pacifier from when he was a baby in the card. Oh, I have a chance at that. Well, it probably is going to get exposed to the market way sooner than it would if you didn't have the case breakers out there. So there's good and bad to it. There's a give and take to it. 
I mean, you, you gotta you gotta take that for what it is, and it's not gonna go away. I think it's gotten diminished. It's starting to get diminished because you gotta have a lot of traction and you gotta have a lot of support to be able to to maintain a group break or not a group break, but uh, to maintain a, a case breaking operation. Mm-hmm. And it's getting harder for people to get into it and establish themselves just jumping in, making a quick buck and jumping out. Right. I mean, companies like Upper Deck, for instance, they've started the, you know, the case breakers. They have that whole case breakers tier of purchasing. So guys that regularly purchase cases and stuff all the time, you know, these guys get special pricing. It's not the pricing that is out to the vendors and the dealers either. It's a completely different pricing tier. Because you're talking guys that are dropping thousands of dollars. Right, but you'd give them a quantity discount anyway. Like if you bought 10 of a product, you know, if you bought one case, if you bought one case personally versus if you bought 20 cases, right, then you get a better... But even me going and buying 20 cases, like say Series 1 comes out. Right. I I came into a bunch of money and I'm like, screw it. I'm buying 20 cases Series 1. But I'm not a regular buyer. They don't know me from anybody else. So it's the guys that keep coming back and they drop a thousand here and two thousand there and four thousand there and two more thousand over and over and over again. And and they can because if you look at the prices for the buy-ins on a lot of these, they're making that money. So they make enough back to buy into the next break plus some. And like I said, some of these guys are clearing a couple thousand dollars a week. So for them, great, wonderful. I'd love to be able to quit my day job and, and just mess with cards all the time. But again, these are not generally collectors themselves. These are guys that are in it for, and you know they're making money. I'm not trying to demonize them or anything. I get what they're doing. I got it. But I'm not a personal fan of the way that whole side of the hobby business has gone. I'm kind of I'm kind of happy that a lot of the companies that started out that way, a lot of the smaller ones have kind of fizzled out and really there's you know, I could probably think off the top of my head about 20 that I hear all the time mm-hmm. and I hear their names all the time. But any that aren't in that top 20, I don't hear very often. So that could be a good thing, maybe maybe not. I don't know. I think for me as far as uh case break, like you said, we collect for different reasons. I, I never really liked the gambling aspect of trading cards. Like, you know, when I was in, like, early 90s, when you were like, you opened a pack of cards, and you're like, yes, this card is a $5 card or whatever. Even if I didn't get a good card in a pack, I was still happy with the cards that I got. I was still, I bought a pack of Upper Deck. You know what, if I didn't get a Yager, or Ronick Rookie, or Fedorov, I was still happy that I got cards, and I was still happy if I got cards that I needed for my set. And I think that that's the thing. Like, for those like me who are just like, oh, I'm just happy to get these cards that I need for my set, it's a loss, because you're spending $3, $5 a pack. You can't really make back your money on it, but that's fine. You get You don't make your money back on chewed gum, either. You get your enjoyment out of it, and then you spit it out. But um, I think I'd have a really hard time spending $30 or $50 drawing the Winnipeg Jets and then getting a Mark Shefferly, or however you say his name, one-of-one jersey patch auto card. And then I'd be like, great, I'm going to sell it. I think I have one of those. 
and I'm going to sell it, and I'm going to hope that I get more than 30 bucks for it, right? And that's just what it becomes. Like, it just feeds this never-ending cycle of, like, sports trading cards are worth money, and so, you know, hey, I spent $50, but I could flip this card for $100, so now I'm $50 ahead, and it's just, it just, I don't know, it just, but, I, I can't buy into that. But again, it, and that's, that's exactly what it does. It makes a watered-down product, because everything hits at once. A product's released on Tuesday, by Wednesday morning, every hit you possibly imagine that's going to come out of that product is now on eBay. If you're a buyer, if you're a buyer, it's they're they're fine. You know, every but those buyers suddenly become sellers of all the high-end stuff. You know, cuz they're all trying to recoup the costs of what they paid into the break so they can afford to pay into another break. And you know, I mean, look, if you broke your own case of cards, right? And you pull a card that was a $300 card. Right. And that you know the the case cost you fifteen hundred bucks. You're going to work to try to get three hundred bucks out of that card or Absolutely. more. Absolutely, yeah. Right? yeah. Well, that's that's on your side. So if you pull a card, that same card out of a group break that you paid fifty bucks to buy into, you may not necessarily be asking for three hundred or or whatever. Right. You may take less because it only costs you fifty bucks to get it. So you're creating this. You're basically taking less than market value. And now you're artificially creating a new market for those cards. And so that waters it down. The quantity waters it down. And the number of sellers that are out there trying to unload all this stuff waters it down. So there's no long-term, I guess there's there's no long-term market credibility to new product. Mm-hmm. There's no, no more of this, hey, the product was released last week. I'm going to wait until, you know, three months from now and then I'll buy it. And see what I can do with it. No, it's instant gratification. Something new hits the market. Somebody wants it. They're willing to pay for it. You pull that $300 card, you could probably sell it for $300. Two weeks from now, you're not going to get that. Well, um, you know what? In closing, because I think we should wrap things up, what advice would you give to someone who was like, hey, you know, the cup is coming out, or a, a new upper deck hockey set is coming up, coming out I can't necessarily afford a box what would you what advice would you give to somebody you know just so they don't throw their money all willy-nilly on a case break what what would your advice to them be do your homework find out what is in the product and what your potential is for the product look at where you're planning on buying into the case from is it from a reputable dealer is it from guys that have been established for a long time and what are the terms? I mean, do you get everything? You know, if, if you have the, you know, the Dallas Stars and they pull 17 Dallas Stars base cards and no hits, do you, are you entitled to the base cards? You know, if you're a collector and you're looking for that kind of stuff, that's probably going to be important to you. So you got to do your homework. You got to know what you're getting into. You got to know what's in the product in order to spend your hard-earned money. Or, you know, what you also got to find out is if it's one of those Franken cards, you got to find out if you get it or not. Like, if it's that Mark Savard card that I got that had a Calgary Flame swatch, 
but it pictured him as an Atlanta Thrasher, but it said Boston Bruins and had a Bruins logo on it. So you could argue that it's a Flames card because it had a Flames swatch. You could argue that it's a Thrasher's card because he was wearing his Thrasher's uniform. But you'd probably win the argument that it's a Bruins card because it had the Bruins logo and it said Boston Bruins on it. Or maybe they'll cut it into thirds and ship everybody a piece of it, right? You know, they... Most of the ones I've seen, and and a lot of a lot of the reputable ones will have a page on their website or, you know, somewhere somewhere available where they'll show you the terms of their breaks, and most of them have them, and they have all this fine print, and they usually deal with that, and the majority of the time, from what I've seen, it's they are giving it to whoever has the team the player is pictured in uniform wise, so even if it's like, I've got like. 37 of this Sergey Samsonov old upper deck jersey card. Yep. And they're all different, but the majority of them, well, not the majority, all of them, he's pictured in an Oilers uniform. The card says Montreal Canadiens, but the patch is clearly from a Bruins uh, uniform. So, you know, there's three teams right there that you can choose from. But if he's pictured in the, you know, that route, you know, the team cards where there's multiple players from different teams, they, they figure that out. So a lot of times those get random off or auctioned between the people that have those teams. But, you know, everything is different. That's why I say you got to do your homework. You got to find out really what you're buying into and find out if you're going to get skunked before you get skunked. Find out if you get skunked before you get skunked, right? Exactly. And see, here's the thing. I've done group breaks before myself. I mean, you know, I, I, picked up a whole bunch of older hockey stuff. I put it out there and did group breaks. Everybody paid the same. I don't think any of my breaks were more than 15 bucks with shipping. And it was fun to do. I did it a couple times. And it was great. But I wasn't out to like make any money. I basically put the price where I had enough to cover shipping. And that was it. I just did it because it was fun. But at the same time, you know, 12, 15 bucks for a break versus where you're, where you're opening six or seven boxes versus a $1,400 case break that you're paying 50 bucks to get in and you may not get something. It's a different story. Well, that's good advice. All right. Thank you for listening to the Puck Junk Podcast and we will be shouting at you again soon.